Mike Brown used to be an accountant, so he was used to counting beans, just not these kinds of beans. After leaving the industry where he'd worked for years, he'd opened his own coffee shop. And after a few months struggling to run his own business, he realized, I need to go talk to people who like know a thing or two about coffee. I need some people who understand the best practices of my industry. And almost everybody that Mike spoke to said the same exact thing. Oh, my sweet cream and sugar, no. I can't believe you're doing that. I can't believe you're roasting Robusta coffee beans. You got to stop. They were always looked down on in the coffee industry as, you know, tasting like rubber, cheap beans that, you know, that they use for instant coffee. Well, I, I found a good supply of organic Robusta beans, and that's what I started using in my coffee. And that was his problem. Mike was doing something completely opposite the best practice in the industry, and he had no idea that he'd done that. But thanks to seeking out all these experts and getting set straight with the best practice, he knew, okay, don't use Robusta coffee beans. Not if I want to find success. From there, Mike started turning things around in a big way. Today, he runs a mini coffee empire called Death Wish Coffee. And customers love their product so much that several even got tattoos of the company's logo. We love those guys to give them like lifetime discounts of the product. As of 2016, the brand has hundreds of thousands of followers on social and earns millions of dollars a year in revenue. At one point, Good Morning America even called up Mike and said, hey, we hear you've got some great coffee. Can we come shoot a video in your store about your product? And Mike said, yes, you can come and shoot. And we can talk all about how we make our products and built this passionate group of fans and earn millions of dollars in revenue every year, all by using Robusta coffee beans. On the show today, we explore this concept of best practices in business. When everyone just assumes something to be gospel, what if we questioned it? What if we trusted our intuition to take us in a different direction entirely? If we decided to do that, I wonder what others would say about the decision. How about, it's unthinkable. Hey, hello, and hi there. I'm Jay Kunzo, and you're listening to another episode of Unthinkable, a show where we explore what it takes to trust your intuition. Do we have all the answers? Nope. But does anyone? Maybe, but only if you believe that there can be such a thing as best practices. So like our episode two weeks ago, if you're going to do something small, heck, if you're going to do something at all, chances are that someone somewhere wants to tell you exactly how to do it because they think they know. Some list online, some boss or some peer, someone. And that's the world we live in, right? Search for how to do pretty much anything on Google or on Facebook or on YouTube or anywhere, and instantly you're swimming in a sea of tips and tricks that everybody assumes to be gospel. Now, while many people will claim these kinds of things to be best practices, and many industries have a list of them as well, this all assumes one thing, that best practices are indeed the best course of action. So let me ask the obvious question, are they? Before you march on my door with pitchforks and torches and, and all sorts of anger at me, get him alive if you can, but get him! <laughs> railing against our precious best practices, 
let's first go outside our echo chamber together with unthinkable contributor Andrew Littlefield. Jay, you ever play the game Madden Football on Xbox or PlayStation? Oh, yeah. I'm not much of a gamer anymore, uh, but I used to love Madden. Right. What's not to love? Especially for guys like me who had more of a, I don't know, a marching band body type. It's about the <laughs> closest I've ever come to strapping on a helmet and shoulder pads. Uh, yeah, I can relate to that. I'm more of a, a strategy guy than a frontline player, I'd say. Yeah, me too. Hey, what do you say you and I play a little armchair quarterback? Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Okay. So here's the situation. Your running back powers past a few defenders and falls forward for a five-yard gain. Now it's third down, five yards left to go. Tough play call here, Jay. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Five yards, third down. Uh, okay, I'm actually going to have my quarterback fake the pass and then try to run it forward for the first down. Ah, the old draw play. Sneaky move. Your quarterback manages to dodge a few tacklers and gains three yards on that run. You needed five. So you didn't get enough for the first down. Now it's fourth down with two yards to go. Oh, well, um, I'm going to punt it. Fourth down, live to fight another day. Right. Fourth down, you punt the ball. That's what good coaches do. Yeah, obviously. That's the best practice in that scenario. Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> While conventional wisdom says you should punt the ball on fourth down, there are some coaches out there figuring out that this century-old idea might be wrong. In fact, punting could lose you some games. Close your eyes and picture a football coach. Maybe you're thinking of a grizzled old ex-jock who walks around in athletic shorts and an oversized sweatshirt with a whistle around his neck, barking commands and pithy quotes about hard work and success. Oh, and of course you envisioned him poring over spreadsheets, reviewing statistical analysis, talking about p-values, and obsessing over predicted outcomes, right? No? That wasn't your idea of a football coach? Alright, before I explain, a quick Football 101 review is in order. Don't forget to take notes, this will be on the quiz. Football teams move the ball down the field in 10-yard chunks at a time, and they have four chances, called downs, to successfully do this. If they move it 10 yards, those downs reset and they get a fresh set of chances to move it another 10 yards. If they fail, the other team gets the ball. So to put the most distance between their opponent and the end zone, teams typically punt the ball away on fourth down. It's a classic example of a lose the battle but win the war strategy. That's how it's been for 120 years of football history. But eventually, a few coaches came along and asked, Wait, do we really need to punt on fourth down? There was a moment when I realized that I needed to really take an in-depth look at the way things were being done. That's Kevin Kelly, the head football coach, athletic director, and self-described contrarian thinker at Pulaski Academy in Little Rock, Arkansas. Back in 2003, when Coach Kelly was hired on as the head coach, the president of the school presented him with a challenge. Take the team past the state semifinals, a feat they had never before accomplished. He goes, I want you to take it there. I think you can. So I'm like, okay, it sounds great. Take the job. Go sit in my office. I'm like, wait, how am I going to be a whole lot different than the other guy? The kids are going to be the same. Football's the same. The rules aren't changing, you know, much. What are we going to do? And then it hit me. You better reevaluate and look at this. So Coach Kelly began to research ways he could give his team a competitive advantage. And that research led him to an unexpected place, a statistics lecture from a Harvard professor. It looked like he had set up a camera in his own room, like his own chalkboard, and 
he was showing some numbers. He had analyzed three years worth of football games of, of college football at every level, and he had come to the conclusion that you should never punt. The reason coaches punt the ball away on fourth down is to make their opponent's job more difficult by increasing the distance they need to cover. They're lowering the odds that the other team will be able to score. But what Coach Kelly learned in that lecture is that while, yes, punting lowers the odds the other team will score, it doesn't lower them by nearly as much as you might expect. Essentially, the risk you avoid by punting is not outweighed by the potential gain of using that last chance to try and get a first down. And if Coach Kelly just sticks to this philosophy, the numbers will eventually work out in his favor even when his team fails on a few attempts. But trying to convince decision makers to accept this new mindset, even though it's scientifically proven, is easier said than done. Most coaches are still extremely old school in this. That's Bud Elliott, a sports writer and publisher of the popular college sports blog Tomahawk Nation. Many of them, I believe, play to avoid media criticism or just to avoid criticism for obvious bold decisions that, that, that some would, would, would claim are bold when in fact uh, I think the truth is that sometimes punting is actually the, the incorrect and, and bold uh, risky decision. Even if you know it's the right decision, doing things differently draws attention to yourself. And in the event that you fail, even temporarily, the scrutiny can be more than many coaches can bear. Coach Kelly faced that criticism too both from fans and opposing coaches who didn't appreciate his contrarian way of doing things. You know, at first they wouldn't sit by me when we had our meetings and, and stuff like that because they're like, well, you're kind of a black sheep and you're making us look bad or you're just being different. We don't, you know, we don't like you changing our game or that kind of stuff. And then from the from the fans themselves, you know, like I said, they would boo us when we, boo us when we went for it and cheer for us when we punted and that kind of stuff. But like all good coaches... Coach Kelly wants to impart a deeper lesson on his students. Kids have come back and they, and, and they do tell me that that helps them in everything and why. It's okay to question everything. As a matter of fact, you should question things. But the decision needs to be based not on what you think, but on what you can support. And then you're going to be fine. So even when you have Harvard professors showing definitively that there's a better way, it's still a controversial decision. What's interesting, Jay, is what Coach Kelly told me about the conversations he's had with college coaches. They tell him that even if they make these decisions, if they happen to fail, even just once, they could be fired days after the game. They say that if they fail to convert a fourth down in the first quarter and happen to lose, that moment will be pointed to as the cause. What people don't take into account is the three other times the strategy worked during the game or that they could have lost even if they punted. No one ever blames a loss on a first quarter punt. Uh, I totally get it. You deal with all that pressure and you kind of need to just fall back on the best practice because others accept it as successful. So you're just trying to cover your own butt and not actually do what should be the right thing to do. So I don't know about you, but that seems at the same time insane and totally reasonable. It's insane to do something just because it's become the accepted way of doing something. I mean, when people throw up their hands at work and they're like, I don't know why we do it that way. It's just the way we do it. That's crazy, right? I mean, in football, yeah, you usually punt on fourth down, but the math says that you're actually hurting yourself. 
But then there's the reasonable part. Once you introduce humans and social pressure, the best practice is something you want to do because even if you fail, you can at least save your reputation or maybe even your job. Because, hey, I just did the thing that we all felt was best. You can't blame me. If I took the risk and I failed, well, now I'm at risk myself, right? Like, I could get fired. But what would it look like if we tried to make something by going against the best practice? I mean, consciously. I mean, to hear that story from Andrew and Coach Kelly, I'm now starting to think that maybe someone else's best practice is just like one possible way. It's not gospel. So what if you try to create something by choosing that different way, your way, even if others think it goes against the very best practice of the industry? Let's return now to that story that we started with, the story of Mike Brown, founder of Deathwish Coffee, which he built using those frowned-upon Robusta beans. Now, Mike, before starting his now successful brand, had just quit the accounting world to open up a coffee shop in Saratoga Springs, New York. And that's where we pick up his story. So I had my coffee shop before I started Deathwish Coffee, and I pretty much ran my coffee shop into the ground. Like, I, I didn't know how to run a, a brick-and-mortar store, and it's expensive, and there's a lot of overhead, and I wasn't very good at keeping track of expenses and revenue. Regardless, there was... I wasn't very good at it. So he did what many of us would do. He searched for some best practices. And everybody advised him to stop roasting those darn Robusta beans, along with dozens of other suggestions for fixing his operations. And as the advice mounted, Mike grew more than a little bit concerned. I actually painted out this worst case scenario. If I lost everything, if I lost all my savings and I, you know, I had to you know, sell my house and sell my car and I had to... You know, what, what would be my worst case scenario? He figured, God forbid, all of that does happen. My mom still loves me. I can move back in with her. And that's exactly what happened. The exact worst case scenario that happened, happened. It actually was even a little worse than that. Cause I had to borrow money from my mom to like pay my employees bills. And that's at that point when I hit like my absolute low, like, I don't know. I felt like I needed that. Even though he'd taken all the advice he could, all those supposed best practices in the world couldn't save him. They weren't him. Their solution wasn't his. So he couldn't just copy his way to success. Instead, he decided to do two different things a lot more. First, he committed to learn more. He said to himself, I have to work harder. I have to read more books. I have to learn more and be better at what I do. Second, he committed to reflect more. He was informed by what others told him or what they said in their books or on their blogs was the best practice. But he needed to let that simmer. He needed to think more about what he believed and how all that education he'd received applied to his situation. For instance, yeah, in a vacuum, most people would not have used those Robusta coffee beans. But Mike claims he found a great source of organic Robusta beans and that he also personally liked the taste. So his situation was, was kind of unique. Good supply of organic Robusta beans. And that's what I started using in my coffee. And, you know, it had that really deep, robust flavor and it had that, that high caffeine content. And I, I just ran with it. I'm like, hey, this is what I like. You know, I tried it out. Like, this is what I like. Um, maybe there's some people out there that will like it as well. As the coffee shop continued to struggle and Mike kept learning and reflecting, he noticed a similar question cropping up from his customers, a lot of which were hardworking, blue collar people. And that question was, What's the strongest cup of coffee you can make? I'll have that. They were like the truck drivers. They were the 
construction workers. And, and I don't know, I did, the products just seem to get geared towards them and that, and that image. And now it seems like we have a, I don't know, we try, we try to like fuel people with a lot of passion. That became Mike's mission. How could he better serve these passionate people? He knew Robusta offered a higher than average level of caffeine, and so he started tinkering on the roast and the blend until he could market his product as the world's strongest coffee. Experts and best practices be damned. That's the thing about coffee. Like, there's tons of coffee people out there who are experts who, you know, really think coffee should taste a distinct way, but, you know, it's all a preference, a personal preference. And both he and his customers preferred their strong. So he could sell the stronger and stronger stuff in the shop, and once he perfected the blend, he could put that potent stuff online under an equally potent name, Death Wish Coffee. And while the results took a little while to get off the ground, eventually it was like somebody poured in a whole lot of caffeine. We sold one bag a day. I'm sorry, like one bag a month, and then we sold like one bag a week. And then I remember bringing like two bags a day to the post office, and I was like, oh, this is the most amazing thing ever. And pretty soon I had actually hired someone to help me out with the social media side. And I'm like, oh, this could be a real business someday. And, and then over the course of four years, you know, we had a Super Bowl commercial. Yep, you heard right. This is the guy that couldn't keep one coffee shop afloat, who had to sell his house, move in with his mom, and refuse to follow the best practices of his industry. And that guy wound up with a Super Bowl ad on TV the day of the big game. And of course his business exploded. Here's what happened. Earlier this year, 2016, Intuit held a contest for small businesses to win a Super Bowl ad. You could submit an application and then rally people to vote for your case. And the winner got their own spot, plus the creative, paid for by Intuit. 15,000 companies entered. And then one day, Intuit arrived at Mike's shop, telling them that they had won. My whole team was there boy, we put a lot of emotion in. It was kind of the focus of our business up for the for the, like the last four months. And we kind of all broke down, cried and partied and laughed and hugged. And it was the most emotional thing ever. It really was, it really was cool. Actually, there's a video of it online on YouTube um, where you can just see my whole, oh, I just almost fall, my, fall to my knees and my team comes around and we hug and pop champagne bottles. It was cool. It was really amazing. Today, Mike's shop in Saratoga Springs is thriving, and Deathwish is even bigger. They sell all kinds of coffee and branded merchandise, and at every turn, they've done things just a little bit differently than what some industry guru would have advised. A lot of these coffee shops and these coffee businesses, you know, you know they go to coffee trade shows, and they set a booth to all these coffee trade shows. And I think that's the dumbest thing ever. We 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 all attend coffee trade shows to see like what's up and coming, but we'll never set up a booth there. But we set up booths at Comic Con. We set up booths at beer industry events. We set up booths at tattoo conventions. You know, we set up booths where people are excited to see us, and we give out tons of free samples. We make tons of customers and make a lot of relationships that way. It's tempting to write off Deathwish as a brand focused on a niche, and that's why they could do things against the best practice. But hundreds of thousands of followers and millions in annual revenue, all created from an initially struggling business, doesn't really sound all that niche, does it? And sure, they may have started with the super-driven hard workers in their area, but today they experience things like this. Well, I was in her 70s, and, you know, her, her friends, you know, they, I talked to them, they're like, oh yeah, we... 
We drink your coffee every morning. Mike Brown will be the first to admit that he knew nothing about coffee when he started his business. And although he worked hard to learn a ton about the industry, he always stuck to his gut and questioned what others said he was just supposed to do, that he had to do something. Something that they all had done themselves the same exact way they'd done it. Mike questioned all of that. I think any time you're acting out of the norm, people notice you and people notice you, especially if they like what you're doing, definitely a good thing. So what does it take to trust your intuition and succeed? Well, for starters, maybe we need to be open to the possibility that best practices aren't always best. Just because everyone else says to punt on the fourth down of a football game doesn't make it the most effective strategy. It just means it's safer to copy what the other people do. But aren't our jobs as craft-driven creators supposed to be about unique insights and standing out and being creative? So why do we want to copy what everyone else is doing? Maybe those best practices are just one way to stay informed about our craft and then better break from it. Because maybe by studying best practices, we're better preparing ourselves not to follow them blindly, but to pave our own way. So ask yourself, what if I didn't cut myself out of the equation entirely? The next time I read about a list of tips and tricks, or I watched somebody on a stage somewhere, or hey, the next time I listen to a podcast, including this one, what if I just spent some time reflecting on it to analyze it in the context of my work, or even just question those things outright? That's what Mike Brown did. And he created fans so excited, so passionate about what he does that they outvoted 15,000 other businesses fans to win him a Super Bowl ad, not to mention spending millions of dollars on his product and even tattooing themselves with his logo. Once again, ask yourself, what if instead of seeking out and following someone else's best practice, you trusted your intuition and crafted your own? Now that is unthinkable. Unthinkable is hosted and written by me, Jay Kunzo. Andrew Littlefield produced our Outside the Echo Chamber story. I was edited by Josh Cole. Thank you, Josh. With creative support from Andrew Davis, Caroline Nuttall, Andrew Swinney, Ryan Brescia, and Elizabeth Davis. Our theme music, as always, is from a city boy born and raised in South Detroit, Tyler Litwin, who is currently on hiatus taking the midnight train going anywhere. Quick question for you. Are you on our newsletter yet? If not, I have a few reasons you should check it out and subscribe. Number one, bonus content shared from episodes when it doesn't make the final cut, but it's still delicious. Number two, future projects that we're tinkering on to collaborate together and grow our community and collectively explore this idea of what it takes to trust our intuition and drive forward with our creative crafts. And number three, my animated gift game on that newsletter is strong, people, strong. And just a final shout out to one of our listeners who is doing the unthinkable and trusting her intuition, Angela Schneider. She relaunched her blog, which has a great name, The Fear of Flying, and she did so after listening to this show. Angela, first of all, I'm super flattered that that you listened and then actually acted. Second of all, congrats on relaunching the blog. I hope you're finding tons of joy in it. And third, keep it up and let me know how I can help. 
All right, we're back next week with another Slingshot, a short story about a side project that launched its creator somewhere surprising. Thanks again for listening to Unthinkable. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.